Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tab's Two Cents podcast. Today on the show we have Luke Broyles, and we're going to be talking about Bitcoin. Welcome to the show, Luke. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Appreciate the invite. Always great to meet new people, and hopefully this is of interest and use to everyone listening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my podcast is, you know, financially oriented, and generally I like to look at stocks and and uh, energy, especially. But Bitcoin is always sort of in my peripheral vision, and it's one of those things that I don't want to lose sight on. So why don't we just start with a little introduction, then I'll get into uh a good question I've got spooled up here for you. Sure. Yeah. So my introduction, um, <laughs> I I guess I'll um, cater my introduction a little different since your audience seems to be uh, from a different uh, background, perhaps than some other of my <laughs> um, shows. But I um, I've been interested in finance for probably about six years now. I first started with personal budgeting, and obviously, you know financial independence. So I was much younger than I was, uh, let's see, I would have been 17 then. So <laughs> uh, pr- pretty young. Uh, you know, I was definitely the weird one for being into long-term thinking, talking about Roths and retirements and all those kinds of things. So most people might just not care. And uh, so, I, so I started with that. I did the whole, you know, Dave Ramsey course, methodology, whatever, probably you and many people listening know about that. I, I did that. Uh, pretty soon into that, just engulfing everything I could when it came to personal finance knowledge, investment knowledge, financial dependence, that whole kind of thing. And so I was uh, pretty heavily into stocks, mutual funds, uh, my my retirement funds, and some other brokerage accounts. And so I was pretty uh, good into stocks, and I I did all right. I outperformed the market, I guess, by technicality. <laughs> um, but obviously, we're not talking about any. You know, we're talking about 18 year olds money here so um you know i I just had funds i'd buy and hold for the long term i thought okay this is what i'll do forever um and then the more i got thinking about it the more i realized wait a second um the thing better than stocks is real estate or at least in many aspects it is because with real estate you can borrow money that the government is printing more of you know you, you why spend my money to buy stocks one for one when one could borrow money to buy real estate four to one, you know, set you know, 25% down or whatever. So I was like, oh, okay, real estate's very interesting. So 2019, 2020, I got into real estate, um, variety of successes and failures there. I'm still into real estate. I'm looking to expand that more. But uh, soon after that, uh, in late 2020, but especially early 2021, I caught the Bitcoin bug, as a lot of people uh would call it i first heard of bitcoin 2017 i thought okay this is worst case a scam (laughs) ponzi and best case is a speculation and i don't want to mess with speculations you know i don't want to trade watches or pokemon cards or baseball cards or or any of these crypto tokens or bitcoin i don't want to deal with that i want secure long-term things so my plan is mutual funds and real estate um but I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and here I am. Uh, I have a high percentage allocation to Bitcoin, and I believe uh, very strongly in it. 
and it's uh it's strange because it kind of come full circle where uh most people think that i've gone way out in the risk curve but frankly i feel like i've gone way safer on the risk curve i, I sleep better now owning bitcoin than i did uh with my stocks uh, i have you know if you were to talk to me five years ago me as the little uh, mutual fund and real estate guy uh I probably would not believe you um, hearing that I'd be all in quote unquote uh, Bitcoin. So that's kind of my full circle there. Obviously there's a lot more events along the way, but um, that's, that's kind of where I am today. And so um, earlier this year in January of this year, 2023, uh, my uh, Twitter X, whatever you want to call it. It was Twitter at the time. <laughs> uh, my profile kind of blew up much to my surprise. I did not expect it uh, for about a year. I had been doing Bitcoin presentations, podcasts, uh, perfecting my presentation and my viewpoints or whatever and nobody cared uh, you know everyone thought I was crazy you know I was interested it was too technical blah 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 uh, but Twitter it blew up pretty much instantly and so I've been riding that wave ever since then it's an honor to meet lots of people uh, travel to lots of places I've gone to oh half a dozen states now talking about Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin conferences events or meetups I just got back from Colorado um, next week I'm going to um, uh, where LA, I'm going to LA and then Arizona, I think, um, hopefully I'll visit El Salvador for the first time, uh, later this year, which for those that don't know, El Salvador is a big Bitcoin hub. So, uh, anyway, it's, it's been a blast. I really enjoyed it. Um, there are downsides too, but I can't complain really grateful. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's how I, I've gotten here. And then, um, uh, and then you reached out and said, Hey, you want to record something? And I was like, of course, sure. So. That's how we've gotten to this moment, I suppose. Yeah, it's very interesting that your journey started much like mine. Mm -hmm. I began my finance journey with personal finance. And of course, real estate's always been interesting, but I'm in Canada and, you know, it's maybe... <laughs> that changes things. Yeah, it's maybe a little bit higher on the risk curve, as you say, in Canada, I think, in my opinion, to get into real estate at this time. so. Um, I'm still in the stock world, though. I'm in energy and uh, commodities is kind of where I moved into. And I guess my question for you is, why did you stop at Bitcoin? Why is Bitcoin the thing for you? Well, I, it was never intentional um, to stop at Bitcoin. Um, it's, it's, it's funny how my mindset's changed, but um, I, I guess the reason I'd say that is that the... Bitcoin thesis, or at least the argument for Bitcoin, which may be wrong, but the argument for Bitcoin is that it's this quote unquote final trade. More often, the big, the maxi laserite people call it the monetary singularity, where basically it's like uh, this end state, essentially. Basically, everything else is a trade to acquire more Bitcoin. And so, if you subscribe to that worldview, then you come to the logical conclusion that. If that's true, then the best thing to possibly do is to make that trade uh, before others do. And so there's definitely a wide variety of ways that one could trade other assets to um, outperform Bitcoin. But basically, you, uh, I, I guess the best metaphor would be viewing Bitcoin as the S&P 500. <laughs> so uh, instead of trying to outperform the quote-unquote market being the S&P 500 with one's investments, um, basically Bitcoin and the Bitcoiners' worldview, that's their 
philosophy, which, which sounds uh, absurd to a lot of people when I explain it that way, but um, really the methodology is not that different. So I, I guess another way to put it is that the S&P 500 is considered as safe and stable and reliable and predictable as it is because buying a portion or buying some um, of the S&P 500 is basically a statement saying, I am bullish on America's corporate sector. And I think in the long term, America's corporate sector will be more valuable in terms of everything else, uh, both on a risk adjusted basis, but also it's just that's par, you know, that's that's the benchmark to meet. And, and so Bitcoin, again, the Bitcoin thesis, which <laughs> we can get into more later, I, I suppose, but the argument for Bitcoin would be that in the same way that buying the S&P is being bullish, the general basket that the entirety of the American corporate sector, or at least the 500 largest uh, corporate entities here in the United States, or at least publicly traded ones, Bitcoin is basically going long or being bullish on all innovation and technology or whatever. Basically, the idea being that money flows from weak assets to the strong assets. You sell your Pokemon cards and you sell your um, US dollars, your political money for the S&P 500 because you view that as the harder more fixed, scarcer, whatever um, asset. So it's not only more profitable than owning your Pokemon cards and your dollars over the long term, but it's also safer in that aspect because you're diversifying, let's say, so much of your risk. Um, and again, that's that's kind of the leap to the Bitcoin worldview. So to your question of why is that the last stop, I, I'd say in the same way that the S&P 500 is typically the last stop for people, um, as they go from meme stock trading to trying to time with mutual funds and individual stocks, they just end in the worldview that, you know, forget day trading, forget timing the market, just DCA in the S&P 500, hold for the long term, and you'll be fine. It's kind of a comparable methodology for these Bitcoiners is that don't trade in all these other assets or community, uh, commodities, just buy the hardest asset, buy the most scarce asset. Um, DCA, hold it, don't trade it. That's uh, that's my personal worldview. I never advocate for trading uh, Bitcoin. I never advocate for um, you know using leverage on uh, Bitcoin, especially leverage with um, margin calls or whatever. But um, yeah, so that's that's for me and a lot of the Bitcoiners. That's why Bitcoin is kind of like the last stop. It's basically we're like, hey, this is the this is the S&P on the human race, basically, instead of the 500 largest companies in America, you're going long 8 billion people, past, present, and future, and all the innovations, theoretically, that they're going to innovate. might take a long time, but that's that's the theory, at least. So we'll see if it's true. That's very interesting. And I, I do agree that the more I look at financial markets and different strategies to make money in those markets. The index approach does become more appealing. <laughs> and it's it's kind of like, you know, some people need to learn the hard way and I'm one of those people. <laughs> and some, sometimes I think about, oh, if I would have just bought the S&P 500 from the start, where would I be today? But of course, uh -huh. there are lessons along the way that you learn. And it is always a struggle between indexing and, you know, individual names so i can see i completely understand that mentality if you view bitcoin as the kind of benchmark 
Um, but I did want to ask, and this is, you know, you're obviously somebody who's very well versed in Bitcoin, and I'm I'm not. So it gives me an opportunity to ask questions that maybe, you know, a general investor would ask. And one thing I would like to ask is when you own Bitcoin, when you're buying Bitcoin, the end goal for the asset, is it to be used in trade or is it just to be sold for fiat currency? Because sometimes I wonder, are you gaining the Bitcoin just to sell for more fiat to buy assets? Or do you think that in our lifetime, we're going to see a world where Bitcoin is the currency or the exchange and trade that we need to buy and sell things? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, I I reverse the question and ask about, um, I, I talk a lot about Argentina. I have a few online friends from Argentina, and I'm hopefully going to be going down there at some point in the next few years. I don't know, maybe not. But um, anyway, I, I think Argentina is a good example that right now, if we were not having this conversation in the U.S. and Canada, but we were in Argentina and we were using Argentinian pesos and we had this, you know, U.S. dollar. I mean, if you were to ask me that question there and instead we were talking about the peso, I mean, I'd say like I'm earning as many pesos as I can because that's the currency we have right now. But I'm saving in dollars because I think dollars are the harder money. I think they're the harder asset. I think they're the harder form of energy. You know, you said you're in energy. It's like that's what it is. They're, Peso is backed by the political might, let's say, of Argentina, and the dollar is backed by the political might of the U.S. Um, the U.S. has a bigger economy, bigger population, and if they ever want oil, resources, or cheaper labor, they have a big military to enforce that. They have the military to enforce their taxes. You know, For a wide variety of reasons, the dollar is stronger. Um, it, it has much more fundamental energy backing it, and it's much more stable than the peso. So I would never um, trade my pesos for dollars back and forth and try to arbitrage the two uh, so that, you know, I can have some pesos, put it into dollars when the peso goes down, but sell it back into pesos, double my pesos. I'd never do that because the long-term thesis for the pesos never changed. The trajectory in terms of the dollars never changed. Um, and so for me, I'd never do that. Uh, because at that point, I'm no longer projecting something or no, I'm no longer trying to time something that's reasonable. I'm trying to time something that's 100% based on human emotion. So the, you know, because I'm basically just trying to predict what's the U.S. government going to do, a.k.a. the people in the U.S. government and the American voter base. And what is um, the Argentinian government going to do? And neither of those things are rational. The Argentinian government probably less rational and more debasing their currency faster. But um, I, I'd say it's the same thing with Bitcoin that you asked the question, do you exchange Bitcoin for goods and services or do you sell more later for fiat currency? I'd say the vast majority of Bitcoiners do the latter where they want to buy Bitcoin at, uh, let's see, what's Bitcoin right now? 27,000. They want to buy it for 27,000 and sell it for 270,000, let's say. You know, they want to, Put in a thousand bucks to Bitcoin and cash out later for 10 grand. And, you know, that way they can buy a car, down payment on the house, whatever. And I, I understand what people think that. I think that's the unfortunate reality that between inflation and economic troubles, most people have a super short term mindset where that's 
their highest priority because that's where their biggest pain point is right now in the short term. But I'd say that the majority of hardcore, crazy Bitcoiners like myself um, are a polar opposite. We're much more on the former, that we don't want to sell for fiat exchange rates. We'd rather just sell for uh, goods and services or whatever. And actually, probably a better word for that, spend. You know, like for me personally, I never want to sell my Bitcoin. I never want to exchange it for any form of political currency. Um, and if there was one form of political currency I would ever consider exchanging it for, it would be the U.S. dollar. But even then, that's not compelling to me at all. Um, for, so for me, I'll probably just hold it. And then if I ever want to buy something or spend it on something, I'll, I'll just do that. And that probably takes a long time in some ways. But on the other hand, I don't think it may necessarily take as long as we assume is the case. So in the same way, you know, I'm talking a lot in monetary terms, but to give a slightly different yet applicable metaphor of like the internet, um, you know, if I'm a newspaper company in the late 90s or early 2000s, and I realize, you know, this internet thing is kind of a big deal, we should take our budget, which is 100% going to print to newspapers, and we should move 5% of that to these weird nerd bloggers in the corner over here, you know, just give them some play money, see what they can do, um, kind of an experiment. I mean, once that energy flows in that direction away from the newspaper and towards the internet, I mean, that kind of never goes back, you know. Um, in 1998, you move 5% over. In 2002, you move 10% over. A few years later, you move more over, and now, you know, basically every media company is 80, 90% um, an online company, and then the rest is just this, like, vestigial organ of um, analog media. So so I'd say in the same way, um, you know, whether we're looking at it from the monetary lens, like dollars versus pesos, or the technological lens, like newspapers and internet, or horse and locomotive, whatever, um, I, I'd say it's the same direction that, for me... I view Bitcoin as the money. And so when I'm selling my dollars for Bitcoin, to me, I'm taking profits. To me, I'm taking profits when I buy Bitcoin, not selling Bitcoin. And I think most people view taking profits on Bitcoin when it goes up in fiat terms. When for me, like fiat's thing is going down. I want my profits now before it goes down further in terms of Bitcoin. So I, I think most people, in short, to answer your question, I think most people would sell it higher for fiat um, I, I do think that, but I, I think the hardcore people are never selling for fiat. And I'm one of them uh, where I'm not compelled, you know, even, even you'd have to give me a pretty strong argument. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me in terms of long-term strategy for Bitcoin. Like if you're buying this asset to hold it, for the future, which you think it will be a very desirable thing for people to have, there's really no reason to sell for profit for fiat currency that, as you say, is inflating away every day. So, uh -huh. I mean, that makes sense to me. And I guess when it comes to cryptocurrencies in general, I know that there's a little bit of a conversation between Bitcoiners and, you know, Ethereum and, and all those things. Do you think that the FTX collapse and the uh, crypto-backed FTX token, the way that it crashed, do you think that 
Bitcoin has sort of established itself as the cryptocurrency, or do you think that, as you say, you throw 5% to the bloggers, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different <laughs> sites in the early stages. So how do we, how do we know, or how do Bitcoiners feel about only choosing one cryptocurrency at this stage? Yeah, well, I, I definitely, um, well, it's a good question. I would not say Bitcoin has established itself. I would not say it has to do with establishment. Um, I think that the stability of a form of energy, the stability of a currency has nothing to do with what do people think about it. <laughs> I think it has nothing to do with the establishment. The reason FTX token, FTT token, the reason it failed is not because it didn't have enough quote-unquote establishment or reputation. The reason it failed was that it was inherently unsustainable. Uh, you know, and so I'd say the same thing with many, um, the vast majority of digital tokens. I mean, we could debate that about Binance token. We could debate that. Uh, well, we don't have to debate that about Luna. We don't have to debate that about a wide variety of other things that have imploded or collapsed. I, I think um, there's so many examples. I, I made my point. Um, but I'd say the reason Bitcoin has, quote unquote, establish itself is because people are realizing that its structure is different it's it's uh, it's survival and its dependence is not reliant on some organization to keep it afloat um, ftx token was reliant on the ftx institution binance tokens reliant on the binance institution uh, bitconnect was reliant on its institution uh, luna was reliant on the terra luna foundation or whatever um, again, Argentina and the wide variety of other countries that have had inflation in the past or present, all that is the result of humans having control of the number of units within that system, leveraging out against itself within, um, becoming insolvent, and then blowing up. And so I think the reason Bitcoin's established itself is because people have seen that, oh, okay, this thing has survived for 15 years. Uh, there has been no successful attempt even remotely successful attempt, despite numerous attempts, of someone being able to do that or leverage it or destroy it. So, so yeah, I I, um, I understand why people would want to diversify into different crypto projects or into different tokens. But um, to use a metaphor we've already used um, at the sake of being redundant is the internet. You know, in the 80s and 90s, there were multiple internets um, you know, TCP/IP was a protocol that won out, but there were other internets, um, the vast majority of which were centralized. And the one internet that was decentralized, the one internet that allowed the freedom of information uh, without human oversight or control, manipulating that information, was the internet that won. And so, uh, you know, like we're listening, we're talking on the same internet right now. Um, <laughs> everyone listening is listening on the same internet right now. You know, none of us had to debate or talk with each other about okay we want to record this podcast what internet protocol should we listen to this on it's just that this became what everyone uses because it was the one with the most lindy effect i'm assuming you know lindy effect this is the one with the you know highest metcalf's law this is the one with the most reputation first and foremost because it's the most secure it's the most decentralized and it's uh, the most outside human influence and so all that to say is i'd say the same with bitcoin that you know right now it's early enough to Bitcoin that we're in like those early internet stages where people are still debating which internet should we use? What is this internet? What does this blockchain 
thing. And, um, you know, which one, you know, and people are right when they say, oh, crypto's all scam. They're like 99.3% correct. <laughs> you know, the vast majority of these cryptos are scams because they're just made up numbers created by people, you know, in the same way that the vast majority of internets were worthless. Uh, the vast majority of these tokens are worthless. And so for me, I have that conviction that Bitcoin's unique, uh, you know, uh, that's partially from the Lindy effect. Uh, that's mostly just from learning a lot about the um, behind the scenes of how it works and how everything else works. Um, that's something that really can only be brought to someone's conclusion by work, effort, and conviction. Uh, but that's how I feel. Um, I, I guess my encouragement for people, and obviously this is everyone has to make their own choice, but for me, my encouragement online always, has always been people just get a little bit just to experiment with it, learn about it. Um, you know, I do not think it's smart for people to go all in Bitcoin. You know, most people should not have the allocation of Bitcoin I have, <laughs> uh, which makes sense because most people have not put in the number of hours and effort um, into this that I have, you know, and so, you know, no one should buy more Bitcoin than they have the confidence or conviction in doing so. Uh, but I do think that most people should consider buying at least, you know, a small, reasonable percentage. You know, again, like the little weird internet bloggers, it's like, hey, if you think there's a 1% chance that these Bitcoin crazy people are right, you know, maybe maybe that's worthy of a 1% or 2% allocation. And so um, anyway, yeah, I don't diversify into any of their uh, digital assets or tokens um, because – Ultimately, this isn't a corporate race of which company is going to outperform and innovate the other. This is ultimately a paradigm race of which paradigm is going to win. So it, I think you know this isn't a debate between um, Amazon and Sears and which one's going to win or Blockbuster or Netflix and which is going to win. This is a debate of protocols at which those things are built atop of. So hopefully that makes sense and answers your question. Yeah, for sure. And I think one thing that I find interesting with all of those examples that you listed there with the failed cryptos is that we know who created those cryptocurrencies and we can track it back to those companies when things go wrong. And with Bitcoin, there's the ghost of Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> And nobody's really sure who that is or where it started. And of course, Bitcoin was created by a person, but to some degree, or maybe a group of people. I wonder, seeing as you're in the circle, the inner circle of the Bitcoiners, I wonder <laughs> what your thought is on that. Where do you think that Bitcoin came from and who's responsible for the technology? Yeah, um, I, I think to go even one further, it's not just that Satoshi was pseudonymous. That's not just the reason. The much more important reason is that even if he wasn't anonymous or even if he came back or made himself known, which he easily could, um, I doubt it, but I, I, I really doubt it, but he could technically. Um, the more important thing is that it doesn't matter. Even if Satoshi came back, um, it, he would have no control over the network. So it's not just about that he's anonymous so we can't trace it back to any one person it's that even if we could um it just wouldn't be 
it, it would have no impact, have no change on the network. You know, my I have just as much of a say in Bitcoin's network as Michael Salo does. Obviously, he has more of a reputation than I do, and more money than I do. But strictly within Bitcoin's code and algorithm and nature of it, um, it it's irrelevant how much uh, money you have. So, uh, yeah, I, I have some guesses on who Satoshi could be. I don't usually like to say just because I frankly don't think it matters. And I think that's just a whole can of worms that um, is more of a uh, side quest uh, obsessive inquiry. <laughs> um, but I, I think it was a person. Uh, I think it was a person from Europe. I think it was a guy. I think he was in his 30s. Um, so I, I have my speculations. And frankly, that doesn't really narrow it down too much because there's really only like a couple dozen people it could possibly have been. <laughs> um, you know, the, you know, Bitcoin's a small, weird niche community now, but, it, you know, the early 2000s, uh, when it was 10,000 times smaller of a weird niche online group, <laughs> there's only so many people it could have been. Um, so, you know, but they, they were pretty much all men in that age range. And I happen to think it's um, a couple different options. But, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's a single person. I don't think it's an entity. I don't think it was the government. I know people that strongly think it is one of those things um and maybe they're right that's part of the mystery and that's part of the fun but um yeah i i the i suspect it was a single person with help from others obviously many people helped him with it but um yeah yeah that's interesting just something i thought i would throw out there um just when i was reading and of course when we talk about money and the stability of money with fiat they have to initially they had to print more as populations increase and economies grow and i know that that's been something that people have discussed with bitcoin well there's only so many but just in reading up on a couple of things there's 100 million satoshis in every bitcoin so correct is there ever being a study or some kind of analysis on how many satoshis you may need for a global economy and do you think that there's enough to effectively allow for proper trade within the world if if the entire world was to utilize bitcoin for that yeah i, I think it's a good question i i think to properly answer that i i think for me i would challenge a presupposition that um, creating more liquidity or creating more currency as populations and economies grow is essential or arguably good. I, I don't think it is because, I mean, if we think of it, what essentially that means is that it inherently is theft and it's inherently a centralizing action. You know, if we have um, an economy a certain size or population a certain size and it grows and we tell ourselves Again, not a government conspiratorial thing, but the whole population tells itself, oh, we need more money to stimulate the economy, you know, help with whatever, uh, you know, lubricate the economy. You know, what we're doing is we are printing new money, which is inherently a centralizing action, and um, it results in greater centralization. It Basically, we're taking those productivity gains and we're siphoning them away into new money. And so I wouldn't argue it's a good thing. Um, so what Bitcoin does is that instead of um, liquidity via new currency units, it just 
gets continually subdivided into smaller and smaller portions uh, indefinitely. Um, you know, you're, you're taking some energy, buying some Bitcoin, and in the future, that percent of energy you held in the past gets preserved into the future uh, as people chase a smaller and smaller uh, amount of Bitcoin. So yeah, there's 100 million Satoshis uh, per Bitcoin. I'm not aware of a study as the one you described, but the basic theory is that it should just continue down indefinitely with volatility. Um, you know, it, it'll be volatile to the downside and the upside as it trends down a perpetually smaller amount of Bitcoins um, available. Um, I work at the Bitcoin Advisor. Uh, the, uh, the Bitcoin Advisor is a uh, company of Australia. We help clients, you know, buy secure and uh, store their Bitcoin. Um, and my boss there is Peter Dunworth. Um, I recommend him for those wanting more of this kind of train of thought. Because um, his basic thesis uh, and a big part of why he's so passionate about Bitcoin and a big part of why he started his company um, is this idea of the daily issuance of Bitcoin compared to the total volume of daily global trade. And so, you know, you could do that math out, uh, you know, trillions of dollars global trade, 900 Bitcoin issued per day today um, in about eight months in early 2024. That'll be 450 Bitcoin a day. So, um, I mean, you could do the math that way, and it's an absurd number. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that, the, the basic idea is that it's a perpetually smaller number. It never arrives at X number of Satoshis that are required for global trade. It's just a perpetually smaller number. Right now, it's a bigger number. In five years, it would theoretically be a significantly smaller number. Um, and then, theoretically, indefinitely, we just keep getting into a smaller and smaller number. And then when we hit the limit of Satoshis... Then we subdivide the satoshis. You know, if we have higher layers, or you know, I mean, this is this would be many years out, probably at least a century out. Theoretically, it'd be a very long time. Um, but um, eventually, at some point, people would probably do that if this idea is correct. That's interesting. So there is a way in which they can divide satoshis if they need. Oh to yeah, be. definitely. Yeah, I mean, people already do. I mean, it's it's just totally a nerd geek Bitcoin thing. <laughs> yeah, there, there's no point, you know, how many, I think it's like 3,000, 3,500 Satoshis per dollar right now. So like one one hundredth of a Satoshi would be like one thirty thousandth of a dollar. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just absurdly, you know, there's no practical application today. They just do it for fun just because they can. But uh, yeah, you could easily do that on a layer two or or layer three, whatever, you could subdivide that. And if things um, escalate to where it's needed, then eventually the network could just update uh, to subdividing the Satoshis or whatever. But, um, but yeah, it, for, for many decades, it's covered on upper layers. Um, obviously, there's a lot more nuance there that I'm not knowledgeable on and skipping over. But yeah, there are people that do that today just for fun. Yeah, it's very interesting because this is something that could only work with a crypto coin or, you know, a internet money or however you want to say it. Because if you had sound money in a physical form, let's let's say they're gold coins, you can only break it down to so many small pieces, right? You can't 
Like you can't have a pin size piece of gold and say, go try to buy something with it. It's too small to, yep. to keep yep. track of. But if you have a, a crypto coin that you can break down infinitely, then you're good. You just have it in your wallet and it, it just, you know, says how much it is. So it is very interesting that way, I think, because you can keep the money sound and still break it down into small enough increments to be useful. And I wanted to just bring up that the first time I heard you speak to Bitcoin was on the We Study Billionaires podcast. Oh, uh, pressed it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, yeah, that was the BTC episode 117. And you mentioned in there that you thought we we're kind of rolling into the, the start of the information era. And for me, what I've noticed with my own personality and a characteristic that I have is that I, I tend to be able to see the big picture, but maybe I don't necessarily take into account how long those things will take to play out. So, you know, possibly I'm right about something, but if I was into an invest into it today, it would be the wrong time. So mm -hmm. I do, I do feel like I see the picture for Bitcoin. I'm just a little bit skeptical about how long it's going to take to play out. I wonder if you could just maybe elaborate a little bit on your thoughts of the information era and where we are today yeah. and kind of where we're headed. Yeah, no, that, that's great. I, I can tell just from talking to you and looking at your profile, you know, you're a long-term thinker. So, you know, that's, that's, that's really good. I, we need more of that, but especially in the investing world, it's um, amazing how we don't have that. But um, yeah, my larger point there about the information era is that I'd argue we're still very early to the internet, um, which <laughs> people seem to view as this revolutionary idea, which really, I, uh, I, I guess I say it more and more now, because I guess I'm surprised again, again, how we forget that. Um, but you know, the internet's only a couple decades into this kind of mass adoption thing. I mean, shoot, the smartphone sitting next to me um uh, you know the iphone here uh, what was that 2009 2007 or something so we're like barely looking at 15 years uh for the iphone i mean the you know it's just um these things are brand new which is part of my concern you know as a side note one of my concerns is that technology is moving so fast right now and it's probably only going to move faster in the future that you know there's many trade-offs we're not properly considering especially when it comes to mental health and everything. But um, that's a discussion for another time. Uh, my, my larger point with the information era being that at least a third of the people in the, on the world haven't used the internet. You know, the internet adoption is only at 60, 62% or so, you know, low 60 percentages. And I'd argue that a lot of the people within that 60%, people that do have internet access, don't use it very much. You know, really there's a very small portion of the world that use the internet daily and use the internet for five, eight, 10 hours a day. You know, I mean, like, I think us people that use the internet all the time, like you and me probably, and probably most people listening to this tend to forget that because we have this bias because literally everyone that we interact with on the internet also uses the internet all the time. And so because we're in the internet world all the time and we're exposed to that all the time and everyone else in that world is exposed to it all the time, we kind of forget that, you know, the rest of the world also exists. <laughs> so, you know, if we were to go back 200 years and you were to tell me that the locomotive, that only 60% of people have ever seen a locomotive and a 
significant percentage of that 60% have ever ridden on a locomotive, an even smaller percent of those people use the locomotive daily. And, and you know, I, I, I were to tell you that, oh, it's late to the industrial age. I mean, that's kind of a bad take, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think... I think on the global scale, again, if we zoom out to the global scale, not just in our little bubble, but if we zoom out to our global scale, why in our horizon, and we extend our time horizon, I think objectively the mid-1800s is relatively early in the industrial age um, progress. You know, the same thing I think could be said about computers. You know, if we were to go back to the 80s when the computer was at, you know, 50, 60, 65% adoption or whatever you know whatever year it is uh we go back then i think it would also be a bad take to say oh it's no longer early to the computer age you know everyone every household has one computer now everyone has dial up it's no longer early this whole internet mania which is a whole another separate adoption curve was the peak of the computer river i mean here we are today most people have a, a computer on their wrist, a computer in their pocket, a computer in their handbag. Their car is a computer. I mean, like everything they have is a computer. Um, you know, so my larger point, the internet being that I think objectively, if we are zooming out beyond our short time horizon and zooming out to the whole world, I think people in people in 30 or 40 years will probably look back at today, um, you know, the early 2020s as being the quote unquote you know, early internet days, which for them is true. For us, it doesn't feel that way because we can look back 20 years and say, wow, that was early. Um, but I think people in the future will look back and say this was um, early for us. And so that's one point to make there. I think the point there, bringing it back to Bitcoin, I think the point there is that I think a lot of Bitcoiners are naive and thinking how quick Bitcoin adoption is going to happen. You know, there are people out there legitimately think that by the end of the decade, you know, by 2030, we're going to have Bitcoin mass adoption and hyper Bitcoin. It's like, no, <laughs> the dollar's not going anywhere for a long period of time. People are very stubborn. They take a long time to change, uh, you know, which there's pros and cons to that. Um, Bitcoin's very young. It's not ready. Layer twos are not ready for that kind of mass adoption, which Bitcoins don't like to hear, but it's not in the same way that the Internet um, at the foundational level was just fine um, in the early days. The websites and you know it's just it wasn't ready for mass adoption the same way bitcoin's not ready for mass adoption uh however with that said i do not think bitcoin needs anywhere close to 100 percent adoption uh for us to see massive societal change you know again internet's at 60 percent adoption and the world for us feels entirely different than it did 10 years ago let alone 20 years ago um, i think it's entirely possible that bitcoin's only at eight percent ten percent fifteen percent adoption in a decade or so and we still see massive global change you know like the if the bitcoin thesis is correct and we see a complete collapse in political currency and a complete collapse in the banking sector and all these things like that's not going to happen at a hundred percent bitcoin adoption <laughs> and i really doubt it's going to happen at 50 percent. it's probably going to happen more like the you know 20, 30% range, you know? I mean, it's like, again, we're at 60% internet adoption. Sears has been gone for years. Kmart is gone. You know, Kodak is gone. You know, all the, all the former behemoths are already long dead and gone, many of which for more than a decade. Uh, so so I'd argue the same thing, that, uh, that that dynamic, which 
gets to a similar conclusion, but I think it's really important to distinct that, that we are nowhere close to 5% Bitcoin adoption. We're nowhere close to 10% Bitcoin adoption. Um, it's years away, but just because that's years away, that doesn't mean that change won't happen really quickly. In fact, I do think it'll happen quickly. Um, you know, and I don't want to get too absurd here, or it, it sounds absurd, so I'll just say it, but I, I think Bitcoin could easily be tens of millions of US dollars a coin, and the vast majority of people still don't own Bitcoin, just because that's how the math works. You know, if you believe the thesis that Bitcoin reprices other currencies, I mean, it easily, Bitcoin easily could be millions or tens of millions of dollars, and mass adoption is still like years, if not a decade plus um, away, which sounds too good to be true. Uh, and I wouldn't have believed it if, if I was telling myself this three years ago. But again, if we think of the internet or we think of the locomotive, um, you know, either it's right or it's wrong. Either the internet is the internet or it's a fad. Either the train is real and a real innovation or it's not and if it is then in all probability at any point it's really early and at a rare point it's stupendously early so i'd argue with bitcoin it's the same case either bitcoin is what we think it is or it's not and people can come to their own conclusions about that but i think people should really strongly consider taking like a one percent allocation or some percent they can live with losing you know Set it over to the bloggers, let it sit there on, on the off chance that we're correct. Um, and I, I think there's a extremely high probability extreme high probability that we're correct. But um, that that's that's the general view that if it's correct, then it's just early beyond uh, what most people can comprehend, which has the pro being a lot of price appreciation in terms of USD, if that's your way of valuing the world. And then the downside being that it's going to take a long time. Like this will be many years of volatility. It'll be a lot of price spikes, a lot of price crashes. And um, if one isn't educated enough on the topic, they should not buy it because they will be washed out in the volatility. So hopefully that answers the question. A lot of different tangents I would on there, but hopefully that's answering your question. Yeah, I think that you did answer the question in the sense of, the timeline is a little bit muddy, let's say. Yeah, yeah. We 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 know it's going to take a certain amount of time. We're just not sure how long that is. And it's very interesting because I spent a lot of time talking about energy, as I mentioned, and, and oil is obviously the major commodity of choice in the energy market. Uh -huh. And generally, the bear case for energy is you know, EVs and uh, green transition, which is all well and good in this side of the world. As you say, we all have the internet too. But when you look at a country like India, for example, or, you know, even China, you know, they haven't fully developed those countries yet. And yeah. you know, there's 1.4 billion people in India that are looking to get mopeds and are looking to get you know, their own transportation and, and that all takes oil. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, the growth of oil similar to the growth of the internet isn't done yet in many people's eyes. And it's just, it's just hard to envision 
the world at that scale, I think sometimes. Yeah, when you, definitely. When you see what's going on around you. So, I mean, yeah, for sure. I think that it's definitely something's there. I need to do more work on it. I don't know what it is yet, but uh, <laughs> as you say, I, I make a similar argument with investing. I'll, I'll mention to people don't bother with the, you know, practice accounts, just put some of your own money in. Yep, and, yep. you know, obviously nothing crazy, just a little bit. So you can feel, you can feel those dips and you can feel those gains and understand a little bit of trading before you, you know, start putting more money in. And I think Bitcoin yep. maybe is a, is a similar thing where you need to, you know, get a piece of it to understand it a little bit better. So, um, yep, exactly. yeah, with, yeah, I don't know if you have anything else to add. I was just going to say, I think that this is, this has been great. If you want to add anything else. Yeah, sure. I mean, like you said, I, I encourage people if they want to learn more about it. It's like just buy a hundred bucks worth, um, do that, learn self-custody, use it. I mean, treat it as your kind of research. It's like you won't understand what it feels like to use lightning until you've used lightning. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you won't understand what it feels like or what, it, you know, so if you want to learn about it, use it. But my encouragement for people is, you know, don't buy more than you can not sleep at night with. Just get a little bit. Maybe that's just a hundred bucks. Maybe it's just one, three, five percent. You know, again, people can pick their percentages, but you know, take some nominal amount, just buy it and don't touch it for four years, eight years, ten years, whatever it is. You know, just let it sit. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> um, and you know, maybe this thesis is right, in which case you'll be glad and you'll probably be selling significantly higher percentages for bitcoin soon enough or it's wrong in which case like oh boo hoo um you know a couple couple percent something that's something that's uh nominal and i think i i think the reason i add that encouragement and urgency is because we have to keep in mind you know let, let's think about this ev example you just brought up here towards the end it's like this that's exactly proves my point like evs are nowhere near mass adoption they're not ready for mass adoption and yet Look at Ford. Look at all the other automotive companies. It's like their margins don't look nearly as good as Tesla's. And I, you know, I've I've mixed feelings about um, Tesla as a as a company or investable. But my point is that even though EVs are nowhere near mass adoption, it's like the same paradigm shift happening again, basically. That even though they're a long way away from mass adoption, the current monopolies are really struggling um financially to keep afloat you know all of them besides ford i think uh multiple times have been bankrupt or at least once been bankrupt and so obviously it's um, a slightly different example but uh my, my point being there is that if that is correct that at five percent bitcoin adoption ten percent bitcoin adoption we see political currencies nation states governments corporations whatever all start to cannibalize or, or implode uh, it's going to be very hard to buy bitcoin you know I, I would argue that bitcoin will reach an infinite fiat exchange rate well before it's mass adopted you know and so the encouragement for people to get off zero buy a little bit of bitcoin self-custody it lock it down the encouragement there is that right now you're not fighting nation states and if this thesis is correct most people will be fighting nation states. Most people will figure it out after nation states have figured it out. And so um, that's, um, that's, that's the encouragement for people to get off zeros. 
just uh, just have fun with it. Learn about it. Be patient with it. Uh, don't FOMO in and don't panic sell. <laughs> you know, just let it ride. You know, either it's going to zero or it's going to an infinite fiat price. And so everything in between is just noise. So, yeah. And right now it's a lot closer to zero um, than infinity. So um, for me, I'm buying. So everyone to each their own. But um, yeah, anyway, I really appreciate the invite. Appreciate being able to talk. Hopefully it's been of interest uh, to people. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. This has been great. Um, just want to say thanks for coming on the show. And if you have any content you'd like to share or any kind of channels for people to find your work, you feel free to plug away. Yeah, I, I am on Twitter or X and I'm on YouTube. People can find me there. Uh, I also work at the Bitcoin Advisor. Uh, one thing I probably should say, too, is that, you know, if you are going to buy Bitcoin, be careful where you're buying it and be careful how you're storing it. You know, Bitcoin on exchanges is not real Bitcoin. Uh, make sure you are self-custodying your Bitcoin. Uh, what The work I do at the Bitcoin Advisor is explicitly that. we I give free consultations to people. Um, how to buy, store, and secure their Bitcoin uh, for the long term where they have control and they have access. That's real Bitcoin. Um, and so anyway, uh, it's it's been a blast to be able to help people. We don't advise people on if they should buy Bitcoin or not. We don't advise people on what percentage they should allocate to Bitcoin. We simply help them avoid the rookie mistakes and avoid those kinds of fears, frankly, that a lot of people have when they first get into this of, Am I going to mismanage my keys? Or I'm going to do this or that, whatever. We we walk people, we handhold people through that process. So um, anyway, if they want to hear more of my ramblings, they can find me on Twitter or YouTube. And if they want to talk to me one-on-one, -on -one, they can go to the Bitcoin Advisor, um, the BitcoinAdvisor.com, and then they'll see my face and they can book a consultation there. So um, those are the best places to find me. So thanks again. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show, so do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Yeah.